This morning, I want to start a conversation with you, and it comes with a question, right? And the question is just this, who do you think you are? I mean, it sounds kind of assaulting to ask it that way, right? But that's, that's kind of the title of our conversation. I remember the first time that I cognitively remember being asked that question. I was in the seventh grade, and when I was growing up in the seventh grade, here's the way it would roll. In the seventh grade, that's when you started junior high, not sixth or fifth like it is now, but in the seventh grade. So it's a very defining moment in your life, right? Very defining moment. I was a chubby little kid, didn't know a lot of the kids that I was going to be going to school with. And I remember the first day of seventh grade, I went to my locker, didn't know anybody that had a locker beside me. I was scared to death. I had to go to the locker, and I was hoping I could open the locker. And I remember I'm trying with everything I had in me to get the combination right. And I remember as I'm trying to open my locker, totally insecure about who I am, where I am, all that kind of stuff, I remember getting shoved up against my locker. And that's the day I met a guy named Johnny Miller. I didn't just, oh, somebody feels bad for me. I appreciate that. Johnny Miller wasn't alone. He was there with five or six of his buddies, And he shoved me up against the locker, and this is what he said to me. My first day, first experience, junior high, he said, who do you think you are? I remember I turned around and said, well, I'm Dan Gregory. Who are you? That's what I said to him, you know? But I found out that he was not looking for an answer from me because later he said, I want you to meet me at this place at this time because I'm going to take you down. I said, you name the place, the time, I'll be there. I didn't show up. Whatever the time and place was, I was scared to death because he wanted to know who I was because somehow he had a point to prove. And what's interesting is this, is that that happened in junior high at a very defining moment when many of us try to figure out who it is that we are. If you ever think about junior high, here's what happens. It's a time of your life you try to, who am I, right? And what happens is some of us spend high school then trying to prove we are who we say we are. Others of us, we spend high school trying to run from an identity that others have placed on us. We don't want people to think that we are who they say we are. I don't know about you, but many many times I would think to myself, man, I cannot wait to get out of this rat race, right? I can't wait to graduate from high school because it's all going to change then, right? Well, if you're in, yeah, some of you are laughing because if you're in the room and you're a high school student, middle school student, I have some bad news for you. Here's the deal. It doesn't change when you get out of high school. It just kind of comes in an adult version of the same thing because the truth is it's a question we all have to wrestle with. Who in the world do you think you are? You see, if I ask you that question, here's what I know. There are some of you, the way you would answer that question is this, and it makes sense. Most of us guys would do this. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm a plumber. I'm a teacher. I'm a mechanic. You answer it by what it is that you do for a living. That's who I am. And so who I am, my identity is wrapped up in what I do. So that's who I am. Others of us, we might answer it different when if I were to ask you, who do you think you are? You might answer it this way. Well, I am what I've done. And so you would list your accomplishments or failures. Some of you might say, well, I'm a success or I'm a failure. Some of you might say, well, I'm a state champion wrestler. Some of you might say, well, I'm an ex-con. You would kind of sum up the answer by virtue of what it is that you've done. Others of you, you might answer the question by telling me where you're from. Well, who do you think you are? I'm a Buckeye, right? I'm a redneck from Pennsylvania. I'm a Yankee. I'm a Southerner. You'd answer it that way. Others of you, you might answer it by what you own. Well, who am I? I'm the owner of the property on 4th and 21st Street, right? Who am I? Well, I'm a Republican. Well, I'm a Democrat. Oh man, I'm a woman. We answer it in many different ways. In fact, some of you in the room, some of you in the room, you don't feel real comfortable with your answer to that question. So what you've learned to do over the years is you've learned to lie about who it is that you really are. You've learned to somehow inflate the resume or inflate the answer to that question in some way. And yet here's what I know. Here's what I know. That in seventh grade, I was asked a question. I don't think Johnny Miller had good intentions. 
I don't think he really wanted to know the answer, but here's what I know after living life, that the question that he asked me that day when he shoved me against the locker was one of the most important, if not most important question I could be faced with. You see, it's really important at this time of year. Here's why, because a lot of us are thinking about the answer to this question, what am I going to do? You see, some of you are thinking about that because some of you at this time of the year, what you do is these things called New Year's resolutions, right? It's pretty common. So you set goals and, and, and you think, what am I going to do? But the truth is, I think that before we ever get to the question, what am I going to do? I got to ask the question, who in the world do I think I am? And here's why. I want you to fill this in on your blanks because we're going to say this every week. But the reason this question is so important is because when I know who I am, then I'll know what to do. You see, those two things go hand in hand, and one comes before the other. And so I got to know who I am in order to know what it is that I need to do, what it is that I want to do, what it is that I can do. I like what a guy named Ken Boa says. He says this, we cannot consistently behave in ways that are different. This is so important from what we believe about ourselves. We're not going to behave. Here's what he's saying. Our identity is what drives our behavior. You're not going to behave in a way that is inconsistent with what it is that you believe about your identity. And why this question is so important this morning is this. If some of us in this room, even this morning, are still trying to find ourselves, we don't know who we are. We don't know who we are. Life has shoved us up against a locker, so to speak, and said, who do you think you are? And we're not sure the answer. So we're trying to define ourselves, find ourselves. Some of us in the room are confused about who we are. Here's why, because we have a whole bunch of people telling us who we are. Culture tells us who we are, media tells us who we are, our friends, peers tell us who we are. And so we're not really sure who we are. And then others of us, we've had people, not with our best in mind, we've had people tell us who we are. And so we've believed them and now what we're trying to do is run from an identity someone else has placed on us. Because somebody told us you're a failure, you'll never amount to anything, you're worthless. And somehow we have this identity that we spend the rest of our life running from. And then there's another group of us, and I know this may step on some toes, but they grew up in church. And we don't know who we are, but we know what to do. Because we grew up in a church where the pastor, a guy like me, all he did was tell us what to do, but never told us who we were. And when I hear what it is that I need to do without hearing who I am, what it leads to is this empty religion and this legalism. Empty religion and legalism. And some of us grew up in church and we had a preacher, this is what you need to do, this is what you do, this is what you do, this is what you do, and we don't know who we are. And so we don't know why it is that we do what it is that we need to do because we have never, ever been confronted with our identity. You see, it's why I want to have this conversation for the next four weeks, and I want to do it in this letter called 1 Peter. I love 1 Peter. Now, some of you are newer to navigating your Bibles. Look here a second. I want to just talk to you. The Bible is not this prescription book. The Bible is not some sort of detached book, but the Bible is full of real people writing about real things to real people. So it has real people writing to real people about real things in the middle of real situations. First Peter's no different. The guy who wrote it is a real person. The guy who wrote First Peter is a real person. In fact, the letter starts off by introducing him. His name's Peter. Go figure, right? And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. But if you don't know about Peter, here's what you need to know about Peter. He was a man's man. I like that about Peter. He was a man's man, kind of rough and tumble, blue collar fisherman. Uh, Peter, Peter, the guy writing this book, he knew what it was like to talk big. Like he knew what it was like. He's kind of a leader kind of guy, but he also knew what it was like to fail big. 
In fact, if you read Peter's story, he knew what it was like to fail big. In fact, I think Peter may have been a guy who might have spent his fair share of time trying to figure out who he was. In fact, I would say this, that maybe, just maybe, Peter didn't have any idea who he was until the day he met Jesus. Because what Jesus did was Jesus told him who he was. In fact, he went so far as to change his name so that he would not forget who he was. You see, Peter was named Simon, and Jesus said, now you're named Peter. This book, this letter we're going to look at, written by a real guy, real guy, who spent his fair share of time trying to figure out who he was, and it was written to real people. Look at what it says. It says, to God's elect... These guys were exiles. Don't forget that exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You're like, okay, man, that's a lot of names, right? Here's what you need to remember. These are real people who have come on hard times. They literally, you can forget those names if you want to. They're scattered all throughout modern-day Turkey. They're, they're just scattered everywhere. Why? Because the Roman government has displaced them. Why? Because there's a guy in charge. His name is Nero. You might have heard his name. He's not favorably disposed towards people who are Christ followers. And so they're undergoing political, social, and personal persecution. And so some of the people he's writing to, they're not sure what to do. They have no security in their life. Some of the people that he's writing to, they're thinking, man, I, I'm going to give up. Where's all this going to lead? Are things gonna, ever going to get better? And what Peter wants to do, why I want you to know this is real people in a real situation, Peter wants to remind them of who they are because when they remember who they are, they'll know what to do, even when things are really, really, really rough. And so what I want to do next four weeks is I want to cherry pick. I want to cherry pick four of the things that Peter says in this letter. Cherry pick four different identities that, that Peter reminds these people that they are in the book of 1 Peter. The very first is in verse 3. I want you to look at it with me. We're going to read several verses. Verse 3. Here's what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. If you write in your Bibles, by the way, I recommend you do. I would underline the two words, new birth. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jump down to verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Verse 14, as obedient children. I'd underline those two words. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Jump down now to verse 23. For you have been Born again, I would underline those two words, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Now jump down to chapter two, verse two. Like newborn babies, I would underline those two words, newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's what's going on. Let's make sense of this. Sometimes you can read the Bible like, what in the world's going on there? Let's just kind of condense it and make sense of it. There's a simple picture going on here, and it's this. Peter wants to remind them over and over and over and over again, no matter where you are, what you're doing, what's going on around you, you are a child of God. That's what he wants to remind them of, that God is your father and that you are his child. Now, now I want to see your eyes for a second. Can I do that? I just want to see your eyes because I know, I want to say this before we go any further. I know for some of you, because I know some of your stories, for some of you, that's not good news. Like you're Dan, that, that's the picture you would pick 
And the reason it's not good news is because you have awful images of your father. Some of you have talked to me and said, every time you talk about God being my father, I struggle. Because my father was mean and angry and abusive. Some of you, your father was absent. And you're like, man, I've already had one of them. I don't need another. And I can tell you this. I, I, I sympathize and I, 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 my heart goes out to you. But I've been a pastor for almost 24 years. meet a lot of people. And I can tell you this. I hear the hurt, the anguish, and the emptiness that comes when a father is either abusive or absent in a home. And it just confirms for me the need all of us Every last one of us, no matter how you feel about your father, all of us have this longing, this desire we have for a father to speak into our life, to bless our life, to surround our life, to walk with us through life. And so what Peter wants them to know is that regardless of what your picture is of your earthly father, there is a father. His name is God. I love the way Louis Giglio says it. He says, God is not the reflection of your earthly father. He's the perfection of your earthly father. See, some of us, when we think of God, we're like, well, when I think of God, I think of my dad, and he must be like my dad. Look, no, 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 no. Don't do that to God. Because <laughs> even if your father was a good father, even if your father was a good father, God is the perfection of that. Uh, a guy named Eric Geiger says this, God's not a supersized version of your dad. He is not a blown-up replica of your earthly father. God is not your dad amplified in high de- definition in surround sound. Regardless of your earthly father's experience, God is the perfect father. Now listen close, listen close. And he wants to be your father. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something, but he's not everybody's father. He's not everybody's father. You see, the question, who do you think you are, begins with another question. There's another question that I gotta begin with before I answer who do I think I am, and that's this, I gotta ask myself, am I a child of God? I gotta ask myself, am I a child of God? You see, and the answer to that question comes at the end of another question, and that question goes like this, am I born again? You see, Peter talks about it, right? He talks about this new birth, he talks about what it means to be born again, and so I gotta ask myself, stay with me, I, you gotta go here with me, I gotta ask myself, am I born again? And for some of you, that freaks you out. It does, because in our culture, let's just face it, I talk to people all the time, and in our culture, the words born again conjure up a picture. It's interesting to me, I, I did a little research on this, they did a study, and the majority of people say when it comes to neighbors moving in beside them, what they don't want is somebody born again. Why? Well, because in their mind, they have this idea of some whacked out fanatic who dresses funny, talks funny, right? Has these really strict moral codes they follow, has some sort of crazy spiritual experience, and most of them think that the people who are born again, who need to be born again, were really broken in the first place. And so they're really, really messed up people who had some whacked out spiritual experience, and so that's what it means to be born again. And yet the truth is, The truth is, that is a wrong picture of what it means to be born again. In fact, the best picture that we have in the Bible of what it means to be born again, you don't need to turn there. Let me tell you the story. It's found in John 3. You got to write that down somewhere. You got to read the story. But Jesus is having a nighttime conversation with a guy whose name is Nick, Nicodemus. Nicodemus wasn't broken, wasn't fanatical, wasn't crazy. In fact, here's Nicodemus. He was wealthy. He was educated. He was extremely religious. He was very learned. Nicodemus was prominent. In fact, he was so prominent, he was the teacher in their town. 
and he came and met with Jesus at night. Like, like Nicodemus, it had it all going on. Everything looked right in his life. He looked like the kind of guy you wanted to aspire to be. And Jesus said this to Nicodemus, who had everything going on. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. But I'm not broken. I'm prominent. I've worked my way up the ladder. He says, you must be born again. And unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You can't. And then at the end of that dialogue with Nicodemus is some of the most famous verses in all the Bible. He says, because Nicodemus, I want you to know this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. But God didn't send Jesus, he said, to condemn the world, but to save the world through Christ. That interesting. You see, when it comes to being born again, what does it mean to be born again? I think there's a hint in 1 Peter. Look back here with me. I just want to show you this. I want to pull this right out of 1 Peter. Look at verse 2. He says this, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Look here, look here. When it comes to being born again, who does the work? God. Guys, think about the imagery. I did absolutely nothing to be born naturally. You ever think about that? I did nothing. Like, I didn't say, hey, mom and dad, I think it'd be a great time for me to be born, right? You do nothing. You see, I think that's what he's saying here, that God, we've talked about this before, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's called the Trinity. What does it mean to be born again? It's to say yes to God. Say yes to God the Father. He's the one that invites us into the family. It's to say yes to God the Son. His name's Jesus. Saying yes to the fact that he did all the work necessary for me to be a part of the family. When he died on the cross, he died for my sins. He rose again, so I'm saying, yes, I want you to save me, and I want to follow you the rest of my life. And the moment I say yes to God the Father's invitation, God the Son's work on the cross, the Spirit of God indwells me. It's fascinating. It's me saying yes to God in his invitation. It's me saying yes to what Jesus did. And at that moment, I'm born again. Spirit of God enters inside of me. That's what it means to be born again. And for some of you, we could stop right there because that's what you need. doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. Some of you know the Bible better than me. You grew up in church. You have it memorized, and you're not born again, just like Nicodemus. Because you've never said yes to what Jesus did. It's all about what you do. It's all about what you've done. And see, being born again is about saying yes to what he did. Saying yes to his invitation. And the moment, the moment you say yes, listen, you can have a fresh identity, a fresh start. You see, i got to start by asking, am I a child of God? And that comes by answering the question, am I born again? The moment I say yes to Jesus... Here's what Peter wants us to know. Here's what the scriptures want us to know is I then am a child of God. And because I'm a child of God, there's certain things. I want you to write these down. As a child of God, there's three things in 1 Peter. Three things. As a child of God, first and foremost, I am secure. I'm secure. Peter wants them to know who they are so they'll know how to live. And he said, as a child of God, listen close. I say this all the time at the front, but, but, but I want to make sure it clicks. 
As a child of God, I can live from security. I don't have to live for security. I'm going to say it again. As a child of God, I can live from security in who I am. I don't have to live for the security. It's very important. It's hugely important. You're saying, Dan, where are you getting that? Well, I'm glad you asked. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want you to circle in your Bibles the word hope. I want you to circle the word hope. Because that word hope, okay, that word hope in the New Testament is not how we think of hope. In our culture, here's the way we think of hope. I just hope the Cavaliers win. It is kind of wishful thinking. That's what hope means. In the New Testament, that's not what it means. Here's what hope means. I know, I'm confident, and I expect it. The word hope in the New Testament is like, I have this confidence because I'm sure that I know. Well, what is it that I can be sure about? What is it that I have hope in? Three things. I want you to write these down. There's no blanks, but you ought to write them down. First is, I know because I'm a child of God that I belong. I know that I belong. When I'm born again, say yes to Jesus, I don't have to wonder if I'm in or out. I'm part of a family. I'm not part of a team. Think think about this. Think about this. I'm not part of a team where I, where I try out to make the team and I can get cut from the team. It's not a job that I get, right, interview for the job and I just hope I can keep the job and I might get fired from the job. But I'm part of a family. I actually am part of, of a family where I'm in. And, and the reason I'm safe is, listen close, because I am a blood relative. I'm a blood relative with God. You're saying, where are you getting that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at, look at back at your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 18. For you know, do the hard work and do this with me. Your Bible begins to pop. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Faith in what Jesus did for me makes me a blood relative. Listen close, guys. My kids don't come to my table and say, hey, I wonder if I'm in or out. (laughs) Like, I wonder if dad cut me from the team. I wonder if I got fired from the job. My kids don't think that. You know what they think? They think there's dad, I'm part of the family. Like that's the way this works. When I say yes to Jesus, I have a security. Like I'm part of the family. Even, even if I don't always walk and do things that please him. Can I tell you a little secret? My kids don't always do things that please me, that I agree with. I don't look at them and say, that's it. You ain't my kid anymore, right? No, they're, they're blood relatives, they're my kids. Why? They were born into my family. They, they were born into the family. When I'm born again, I'm born into the family. There's this security that I have. The security of being part of the family of God. Now, here's the deal. I have a security, but it does not, you ready? It does not shield me or insulate me from hard times. Let me ask you a question. Anybody in this room ever face a hard time? Let me hear you. Anybody? Amen. Yeah, somebody said amen up here. One, one true guy, one honest guy. You see, being a child of God doesn't insulate you from that. 
In fact, I'm going to just tell you this. I like to shoot straight with you. If, if you're listening to a preacher on TV that's, that's telling you that once you become a Christian or a Christ follower, that all of a sudden everything's great, find a different show. He's, I'm telling you, he's not telling you the truth. They're not telling you the truth. I'd find a different show. Because the truth is, even as a child of God, I face hard times. But, but you know something? There's something interesting about when I, you, we, as a child of God, face hard times. We can know... We can know something. We can be certain of something. I want you to write it this way. I know hard times will make me better. When I face hard times, it doesn't ruin me. It refines me. Here's what Peter says in verses 6 and 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to, look at this, suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Why am I going to rejoice? Because they've come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here's what he's saying. Just like fire refines gold, hard times refine faith. And faith is the very thing that allows for me to be born again. That's the very thing that allows, it's the most important thing about me. Don't make this too complicated. Think about it. If, if that's where my identity is, even when hard times come, hard times refine the most important thing about me. If my identity is in my, in my job, if my identity is in, this has happened to me, if my identity is in my job and I show up to work and lose my job, I don't know who I am. That very scenario has happened to me. It's happened to some of you in this room. If my identity is in my athletic prowess, this is my story too, right? Not that I was, had athletic prowess, but I, I thought, man, that's who I'm going to be. I'm going to go play football. I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do. If my identity is in my athletic prowess, the very moment I have an injury that doesn't allow me to play that sport anymore, I don't know who I am. It's, it's why, guys, you NFL fans, like some of these big NFL stars, when they retire from the NFL, they go all over the place. They don't know who they are if they're not an NFL player, if I'm not a superstar. You see, if my identity is in success, I'm a businessman built from the ground up. The minute the stock market plummets, I don't know who I am. I don't know what to do. But what he's saying is, okay, okay. There's nothing wrong with being a successful businessman, being an athlete, being all that. But he said, that's not my identity. I'm a child of God who happens to be an athlete. I'm a child of God who happens to play in the orchestra. I'm a child of God who happens to be a successful businessman. I'm a child of God who happens, you fill in the blank. But when I'm a child of God, that's my identity. Hard times are a fire that refines me. They are not something that ruins me. See how that works? I know hard times are going to make me better. But he doesn't stop there. Look at what he says, verse 3, end of verse 3. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into, here it is, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. I want you to write it this way. I know the best is yet to come. Hard times are going to make me better and the best is yet to come. He said, y'all got an inheritance and doesn't matter what's going on in the world. That inheritance is guarded, shielded by God himself. It's death proof. It's sin proof. It's time proof. It's guarded in heaven. It is a forever blessing. I am secure. I'm in the family. Well, what if times get hard? Hard times are going to make me better. 
Well, what's this world coming to? Best is yet to come for the child of God. That's what he's saying. You see, when I know who I am, I'll know what to do. I can live from that security. I don't have to live for that security. Some of you need to hear that because you're not sure where you're at with God. You're like, I don't know. Does he want me in, out? I don't, you don't know. I can live from security. That's not all. He says in, in chapter two, verse one, this is so, such a cool picture. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, look here a second. He just gives us a picture. Let's not make this too hard. He gives us a picture to understand, okay, as a child of God, there's something that I understand about a child that helps me understand this picture. And here's what he wants us to know. As a child of God, I am always growing up. That's what he wants us to know. I'm always growing up. I want to illustrate it. You guys are in for a treat, okay? I've heard about it already, and I've only shown it once. But you're in for a treat. I want you to look here. I know it's painful, but look here, okay? I am, okay, you might not know, I am the son of John and Betty Gregory. That's my mom and dad's name. I have always been their son. I have always, listen close so the example makes sense. I have always been the same person. Always been the same person. But I have not always looked the same. In fact, I started... That way. Can I get at least one, ooh, aw, something like that? Yeah. Thank you. I had to fight for it, but yeah, that's my mom. I'm on her lap over here on the left. That's me with my brother, my dad. I'm the one on the right. I was cute. Now listen, I wasn't real functional. <laughs> there wasn't much I could do. You know what? I, I needed my mom and dad to do everything for me. They, they did everything for me. Look here a second, same guy, that's the same guy. Well, eventually, I moved out of that phase and I moved into another phase of maturity, right? Thank you, now we're working, all right? Yeah, that's kind of early elementary into elementary school. If you only knew the honoriness behind those eyes, you'd be scared that I was your pastor, I promise you. Yeah, I started to learn things, do things on my own. I, I, I put away things that were childish and I moved into a whole new level of maturity, right? I began to understand things. I began to understand letters and then how to read and all that kind of cool stuff, right? And then eventually, I moved into a whole other phase of maturity. Yeah. Somebody said, is that really you? Yeah. I mean, I moved into high school and all of a sudden, I started driving a car. You didn't want the elementary Dan driving a car. Couldn't drive a car. But that's, that's the high school Dan. Now, somebody did point out, do you see the football player on the right? You see the colors of our uniform when I was in high school? Same as the Ohio State Buckeyes. I don't know what the problem was with that, right? But I moved into this whole other level of maturity and I put away. So I didn't continue to do the things I did in elementary school. I began to do things differently in high school. And then when I graduated from high school, all of a sudden I moved into another phase of maturity. I realized how much I didn't know, right? And I realized how much I had to learn. And then I met this wonderful person who became my wife. And I moved into a whole other level of maturity. If high school Dan had married at that point in time in his life, man, it had been a disaster. But I moved into another level of maturity until eventually I walked out of this phase and I walked into another phase where we had our own children, right? And we were raising them up. 
through all kinds of stages and levels of maturity. And if you don't know my family, in the front is my daughter, Rachel. Uh, Over here on the far right is the guy that preached to you last week. His name's Joel. He's the one covering his eye like Piwak at the Cat or something like that. And the one that I'm holding is my youngest. His name is Aaron. But the problem is this. That's not where it ends. But but, but you continue to grow through different stages of maturity, right? And here's the point. <laughs> You're like, what's the point? I don't know. The, the points, can we take that down? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> here's the point. Same guy, all pictures. Same guy, all pictures. You're like, have you really matured? You're looking at that last picture saying, have you really matured, right? You see, same guy. Here's, here's, what, here, here's what happens. When you look here, same guy, all pictures. I'm the same guy. I look different. I understand things different. Why? Because what I did was I moved out of phases into maturity, out of phases. And each of those pictures represent that. And all, listen, all Peter wants us to understand is that's what it means to be a child of God. I'm constantly growing up, moving out of phases of immaturity into new phases of maturity. Here's what I can tell you was the same through all those pictures. You know what the same was? Don't make it too hard. You know what the same was? This thing that was the same through all those pictures is I was eating all the time. If I had stopped eating, I wouldn't have made it to those last pictures, right? I was eating all the time. And all Peter is saying is this, is that in order for me to grow up as a child of God, I got to put away childish things, grow into maturity. And the way that happens is craving pure spiritual milk, which is God's word. So I crave eating. I'm always eating. I didn't, listen, I didn't show up as Betty Gregory's and John Gregory's son thinking, wow, you mean I got to eat? No, I was a child. I'm like, I need to eat now. You see, when I know that I'm a child of God, it's not like, oh, the preacher said, I've got to read the Bible. Uh-uh, no. You see, when I understand I'm a child, I'm like, no, I want to, I crave, I got to eat. Because why? I'm a child of God. But, but I can tell you this, that eating, this is so important. Eating, when I was a baby, eating was not the ends. It was a means to the end. Eating is not the chief goal of my life, but if I don't eat, I don't live. The same thing with the Bible. Some of you need to hear this. Some of you know more about the Bible than all of us put together. And just knowing the Bible does not mean you're mature. Does not mean you're mature. You see, the Bible is God's spiritual food that I eat so that I can put away childish things, walk into new Stages of maturity. Put away childish things, walk into new stages of maturity. So I keep eating. So as I grow up spiritually, I stop needing eventually someone to always feed me and I start feeding myself. I start feeding myself God's word. As I grow up spiritually, I stop getting my approval from everybody around me telling me who I am and I realize that my approval comes from what God says about me. As I grow up spiritually, listen close, I stop crying to get my own way. And I start giving my life away. See how that works? You see, as I grow up spiritually, I mature. And as I mature, here's what it means. The Bible says I keep in step with the spirit who lives inside. I all of a sudden display the fruit of the spirit. You're like, what's that? It means this. Listen close. I'm going to make it simple for you. As I mature spiritually, as I grow older spiritually, I look more and more like Jesus. 
I did a wedding about two months ago. I hadn't seen a lot of the people there for, for ages, and I had somebody say something. I don't get this often. They hadn't seen me for a long time, and I got a lot older since the last time they saw me. And this is what they said. They said, the older you get, the more you look like your dad. I'm like, wow. They said, I see your dad all over you. You see, spiritually speaking, the older we get, the more we look like Jesus. We put away those things that are childish, and we mature, and we mature, and we keep in step with the Spirit who lives inside. That's all it means. Don't make it harder than it is. That's all it means. The more I look like Jesus, I grow up spiritually. Okay, listen. I'm secure. I'm always growing up, and there's one last thing, and then we're done. As a child of God, I realize that I'm part of a family. I'm part of a family. I've got to race through this, but, but, but let me at least hit it. If I'm a child of God, then I'm a part of a family. That means, some of you need to hear this, I'm connected not to a religion. Don't go get religious. I hear people say, I think I'm, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and get religious. Don't go get religious. You're like, the preacher say that? Yep. Don't go get religious. Let me say it in case you didn't hear me. Don't go get religious. Because being a part of a family is I get a relationship. And they're two different things. You see, being born again, being part of this family as a child of God means this. I am deeply loved by my Father. I'm deeply loved by God. That's where it begins. 1 Peter 1.3 says, in his great mercy, he's given us this new birth. That, that the word mercy simply means his loving kindness. God, God loves every last one of us in this room more than any of us know. God loves every last one of us in this room more than any of us know. He's pursuing us. He's inviting us. He cares about us. He paid the price for us to be part of his family. So then what happens? Well, when I all of a sudden realize his love for me, verse 8, 1 Peter 1. So here's what happens. I respond, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. I respond to his love with love. When I know that I'm loved by God, the response is I love him. Well, how does that love look? Look at verse 14. As obedient children, don't conform to the desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Here's what I want you to hear me say. It shows up in obedience. Why do I obey God? Because the preacher told me to and I grew up in church. No, that's why some of you don't have this inexpressible joy, but you're very religious. Now we're connecting dots, aren't we? Why, why do I obey? You know why I obey? I love this stuff. The reason I obey, <clears throat> these are questions I've asked my own kids. I obey because I believe that God loves me more than I even know. I believe that he wants what's best for me, and I believe that he knows better than I. Those are questions I would ask my kids. Do you think I love you? Mm-hmm. Do you think I want what's best for you? Mm-hmm. Do you think I know more than you? They always paused. <laughs> always. Uh-huh. Then if you really believe I love you, and you really believe I want what's best for you, and you think I know more than you, then why don't you obey? You see, that's how this love relationship looks. That's how it works. We have a God who loves us. See, this is why this is important. Some of you have been told what to do. You grew up in church, and you know what to do, but you don't know why you're doing it. There's no relationship connected with it. You ought to write this down somewhere. This is for free. Rules, rules without relationship usually lead to rebellion. Rules without relationship usually lead to rebellion. 
or at least rigid religion, (laughs) rules without relationship usually lead to rebellion. You see, I have a father that loves me. I respond to him with love, and then I realize I'm part of a family. I, I got brothers and sisters. It's a big family, and so the love I experience from my father, I extend to my family. He says this, verse 22, now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply. You're connected to a family. How does that look? He says in chapter four, verse eight, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. How does it look when we as brothers and sisters love each other? It looks by sharing our life together, by serving each other, by preferring each other, by caring for each other, by even forgiving each other. That's what he's saying. Like some of you, some of you serve in the nursery. Look here a second. Let me ask you this. How many of you are in the room right now that there's, you're glad that there's somebody serving in the nursery? How, just, just let me hear you. Just let me hear you. Amen. Amen. Okay, that's good. Amen. You're glad somebody's serving in the children's area. Some of you serve in those areas. Now listen, I want want to totally change your paradigm. You don't serve a function in this church. That's not what you're doing. You don't. You're serving a family. You're serving your family. You're loving others. Why? By serving them. By, By coaching their kids. By caring for their kids. Some of you lead grace groups and you invite people into your home. You're not serving a function. Yeah, I'm a grace group. That's what I do. No, you're, you're loving your family. You're serving your family. You see, we belong to a family. Can I tell you, as a dad, I, I don't know, some of you got younger kids and, and if you have siblings. Let me tell you one of the ways, one of the things, I got two of my kids sitting in, in this room right now, so they would know this to be true, but they're gonna hear it again. One of the things that is an absolute passion of mine, I want my kids to love Jesus, know they're loved by Jesus. I want my kids to grow up to love each other to have a relationship with each other, to care about each other. Think about it, guys. I am Joel's father. He's the one that preached last week. I'm Joel's father. I love Joel. I want him to know I love him. I wouldn't have no doubt about that. But, but if Joel's gonna understand my love for him, he's gonna understand that I absolutely love two people whose names are Aaron and Rachel. And for him to be connected to my heart has to somehow extend what it is that he experiences from me. See how that works? That is so important to me. See, you're part of a family. You're part of a family. And in this family, hang with me, guys. Hang with me. You're part of a family. And it's important that you love each other in this family. Okay? It's important that we understand it because when we know who we are, we're going to know what to do. It's hard to connect with the Father's heart and not extend his love. Now, I'm going to ask you to hang with me a second, not put your stuff away, but I'm going to invite the band to come out. I want to talk to you for a second. I just want to talk to you for a second. Because I don't know how a talk like this would land with you this morning, but some of you are here, and the question is, who do you think you are? (laughs) And some of you might be here this morning like, I didn't know when I came in, but I know from what you just said, Dan, I'm not a child of God because I've never been born again. I've never said yes to his invitation. I've never said yes to what Jesus did for me. I have good news for you. I want you to stay with me on this. That today, you can walk out these doors knowing exactly who you are, exactly who God calls you. 
that as we sing this last song, which is going to be a reprise of the song we already sang, it's perfect, that you can sit there in your seat and say, yes, Father, I want to accept your invitation. Yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross in my place. Yes, I believe he's alive and I want to follow him. And that moment, Spirit of God resides in him. And you're born again. (laughs) And today can be that day where you have a fresh start, a new identity. There's some of you that are here today, though, and you'd say, I've done that. I've done that. But somewhere along the way, you forgot who you were. Somebody else told you who you were. Maybe you bought a lie. Maybe, maybe somewhere along the way, you just stopped remembering who you were. And the question to you is, who do you think you are? Kind of reminds me of my, my youngest. His name's Aaron, and when we moved here, he was in the fourth grade. The other two were older, and so moving to a whole new place was a huge struggle for them. He had one question. One question that I remember was this, Dad, do they have football in Ohio? I said, yeah, but it's not very good. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I said, yes, sir. He said, Dad, I'm going to be fine as long as I can play football this year. I said, okay. We no longer got here and we signed him up for football, junior football league. He was in the fourth grade, and if you know my son, he's always been a bigger kid. So everything was hitting us kind of fast, and they said to him, man, he's too big to play with the kids his age. We're going to have to move him up to sixth and seventh graders. I didn't really think much about it then. I said, okay. So they threw him over there with these junior high students, and I sat on the hood of my car first day of practice. And all of a sudden, I realized I'm going to have to come every day to practice. Not picking or being critical, but I heard the coaches that first day of practice call those kids things that I couldn't believe were coming out of their mouth. I had coached for 14 years and I think coaching football is a great way to develop leaders and men and these guys were calling these young kids things and running them down and calling them things that I would be too embarrassed to say in front of you. I decided that first day, my first week in Norton, I'm going every day. I don't know what they're going to say to, to my kid who's in fourth grade because they said some pretty nasty things. But on a pretty consistent basis, after practice that first year, my son would get in the car. I'd look at him. I'd say, listen to me. You're not who they say you are. You aren't who they say you are. You are who God says you are. I don't know where some of you are at, but today Jesus sitting on the hood of the car. And he's saying, why don't you hop in? Because you're not who they say you are. You're who I say you are. So God, as a result of that this morning, my prayer is is that we would drive out of this place letting you drive the car. And we realize that because we're a child of God, we're secure. Because we're a child of God, we're always growing up and walking out of stages of immaturity into maturity. 
that we're part of this big family loved by you and with a chance to extend what we've experienced. I'm so grateful that I can say I'm a child of God this morning.